listening to an audio sermon from Fort William Baptist Church. We are located in Thunder Bay, Ontario. To find out more about us, please visit our website at www.fortwilliambaptistchurch.com. Thank you for joining us today. Would you open your Bibles up this morning to Psalm 39? We're going to be out of the book of Mark this morning, and we're going to take a look at this, this psalm. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, I would encourage you to grab one from in front of you. And you can find Psalm 39 on page 467 in, the, in that Bible. We'll be reading the whole psalm this morning. So let's give our attention to... Uh, God's good and trustworthy word, Psalm 39. I said I will guard my ways, that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a, a muzzle, so long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail, and my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they're in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hands. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears. For I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we confess this morning our faith is often feeble. We confess this morning the, the insufficiency of our Christian character. There are so many cracks and crevices in it. But we we take comfort, we take hold of you and your promise. You are the God who drew near to Abram and made a solemn pact with him. You are the God who drew near to Israel at Sinai and covenanted with them. You are the God who drew near to David and gave him sure and good promises. And you are the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has brought all of these things to pass. We take comfort in the fact that though our faith is often frail and feeble, your promise 
never wanes. Your faithfulness is never in question. We take comfort in you, O God. You are the God of promise and there is no one like you. And so we need you this morning, O God. We need you to do a work in our hearts. We need you to reframe us and refashion us. We need faith this morning. Would you reveal yourself to us again? Would you teach us through your word? We, we desperately need your help. So we pray, push your word into our hearts. We pray this in your son's good and gracious name. Amen. So when you, when you scan your Bibles cover to cover from the, the book of Genesis to the, the book of Revelation, you're going to find a, a similarity throughout the scriptures, and that similarity you're going to find is suffering, suffering. And so when you, you scan your Bibles, you'll find that suffering occurs on a, a corporate level. Go back to the Old Testament, the book of Exodus, you find that the Israelites were in the land of Egypt for 430 years. And as you survey your Bible, you'll find books given over to corporate lament, like the book of Lamentations and so many of the, the Psalms in the Psalter. In fact, if you go into the New Testament, you'll find New Testament books written to bolster the church in the midst of suffering and trial. You think of books like Revelation, written to the, the suffering church who's in tribulation. And as we survey the scriptures, we find also that suffering occurs on an individual level. And what is so interesting is that God's choicest saints, those men and women that we look up to in the scriptures, are often those who suffered the most. Think about Joseph, a man of rare moral quality, who would not sleep with Potiphar's wife. What was the common situation of that man's life? Well, he was on the wrong end of deceit and slavery and prison so many times in his life. Or consider Job, a man blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. What was his lot in life? Well, he lost so many of his creature comforts, all of them, in fact. Wealth, family, friends. Or consider David, that great king of Israel, a man after God's own heart. What did that choice saint experience in his life? Well, again, the majority of his life, he was on the, on the run from one enemy or another, whether it's Saul or one of his own sons. And as we consider our own situation this morning, we do not stand outside the story that the scriptures tell. Rather, we're enmeshed in this story. We have something in common with Joseph, Job, and David, and it's, and it's suffering. It's for this reason that the apostles, as they write the New Testament, and as they look upon the situation of the church, they found it necessary to expound upon the inevitability of suffering in the Christian life. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. We have to notice the, the words that Peter uses. He doesn't come to us and say, well, well, if, but he says, when, when it comes upon you to test you. He's talking about the inevitability of suffering. And in the same strain, Paul talks similarly in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. He addresses the church and says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And again, we can notice the way that Paul uses his words. He does not say perhaps, 
there's a good chance that you'll be persecuted. He says, no, you will be persecuted. And so the great question then is, is how do we approach and deal with suffering in this present life? It's inevitable. How do we deal with it? And the reality is that we're not the only ones who've considered this question. Every major philosophical movement or school, every religion has its dogmas and teachings on suffering and how to walk in the midst of suffering. And as we think about our own cultural moment right now as we're situated here, there are two deceptive paths that are offered for us in our suffering. First, there is this, this path of stupefaction. Uh, this path preaches, you, you cannot avoid suffering in this life, but you can certainly try to numb yourself to suffering in this life. And this, this path offers. Well, why feel when you can be distracted with the new and the interesting? And this path offers a prescription, and it's a, a large uh, dose of Netflix and chill. And to our pain, this, this path offers endless streams of posts and, and tweets that can be found on our phone that never end. There's this constant distraction it preaches, well, why feel? Why remain in your trouble when you can be distracted and numbed with the new and the interesting? And for those of us who are a bit more practical, there's a second path offered to us as well. Jordan Peterson, a professor of psychology from the University of Toronto, you've, you've maybe heard of him. He's written a book called 12 Rules for Life. He offers a second path. And he, he says in one of his lectures, I got to the bottom of some things. Life is suffering. And I got this idea about what you might do about it. Get yourself together. Transcend your suffering. See if you can be some kind of hero. Make the suffering in the world less. He goes on to say, that's the way forward as far as I can tell if there is a way forward. So there's this practical deceptive path. Get your life together. Transform your suffering. Do some good in this world. Perhaps become a hero, a, a model in this present age. And as we think about these two deceptive paths, the truth is that they're not mutually exclusive in, in practice. More often than not, you probably find yourself flip-flopping between these two paths. One moment, you're, you're trying to numb the pain with some kind of distraction Numb the affliction with, with some kind of distraction. And in the next moment, you, you flip to the other path and you, and you try to transcend your suffering. You try to be some sort of hero. But we have to ask again, how are we to approach suffering in this present life as Christians? How do we approach suffering in this present life in a way that pleases our God? And the reality is that neither of these paths offered in our present day will please God and they won't provide a sure footing to walk through suffering. And so we need to turn to the well and tried true path that all of God's people have traveled. And we get some help this morning from the past. We turn our attention to a, a man. His name is, is Thomas Brooks. And he was a, a 17th century uh, pastor and writer. He was a Puritan. And he was concerned about this very matter. He wrote a book entitled The Mute Christian Under the Smarting Rod. Those are some very interesting words. We probably don't use them that much. Smarting, what does that mean? Well, you'd say, oh, that smarted. That hurts. So he wrote a book called The Mute Christian Under the Smarting Rod. And he dedicates this book on the first page to all afflicted and distressed, dissatisfied, disquieted, and discomposed Christians throughout the world. 
So Thomas Brooks is writing this book, and he's got an eye on the people who are suffering. He's a pastor. And in this book, in this book Brooks acknowledges the, the present suffering of the people of God. He, he writes, God, who is infinite in wisdom and matchless in goodness, has ordered troubles. Yes, many troubles to come trooping in upon us on every side. He says, as our mercies, so our crosses seldom come signal, single. They usually come treading upon the heels of another. They're like April showers. No sooner is one over, but another comes upon us. If you've endured suffering, Brooks' words sound a sure note. What he's saying is true. But Brooks doesn't write just to point out the obvious. We don't need someone to write a book to tell us that life is full of suffering. We, we get it. Many troubles come trooping in upon us on every side. They're like April showers. No sooner is one over, but another comes upon us. No, Brooks writes to provide us some help as we walk in the midst of these troubles. He goes on to say, Afflictions are a golden key by which the Lord opens the rich treasure of his word to his people's souls. And this, in some measure, through grace, my soul has experienced. And so Brooks is a man who has walked through suffering. He's walked through trials. They've come upon him, and they've done a work in him. He's looked into the scriptures, and he's seen something. He's found treasure. The text of Scripture that paved the way for Brooks in the midst of suffering was Psalm 39, verse 9. We read it this morning. The text says, I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. What Brooks does is he spends the next 110 pages expositing and applying this text to the sufferer and what it means. So what we're going to do this morning is we're simply just going to follow in the the sure footsteps that Thomas Brooks lays out for us as he takes up the text of Psalm 39, verse 9, and applies it to the sufferer. So we can turn our attention to Psalm 39 this morning. Psalm 39 is a, a song that comes out of suffering and lament. It is evidently clear that David, the writer of this song, is in distress. And the exact nature of his suffering is left to our imaginations. We don't know if it stemmed from a, a political situation, whether there's some rival opponent in the nation of Israel causing him trouble or a, a foreign invader. We don't know if it stemmed from some physical condition or if it was a matter of the family or a combination of two or all of these. But the one thing that we do know is that the suffering deeply troubled David. Verses 2 and 3, David opens up and he gives us an interior picture of his soul and what's going on inside of him. David writes, I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail, and my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire burned. We get a, a picture of the raging emotions that were going on inside of David because of his suffering. He could not keep them pent up. They were like unruly waves smashing against the shore, going over the the allotted boundaries. The more he thought about his present situation, the more he considered what was going on in his life, the worse he, he became. He did not find any relief, only growing trouble in his soul. He was agitated. So agitated that David describes his emotions like a a raging fire consuming the interior of his body. What an accurate way to describe profound turmoil 
my heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire burned. But in the midst of this suffering, David begins to make a move. And he finds some traction. He finds some movement towards the Lord in this psalm. In verse 7, he says, And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. And in verse 8, he, he seeks the salvation of his God. He says, Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. And in verse 9, David comes to a firm resolution. This is what the sermon is all about. He, he reveals what his stance will be while he waits for the Lord's salvation. He says, I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. And this resolution we find in verse 9 mirrors how David began his song in verse 1. In verse 1, David said, I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle. As we think about David's response, it's, it's quite remarkable. What is David doing here? Well, he doesn't look for a distraction. He doesn't turn on Netflix. He doesn't grab his phone to numb the pain. No. Nor do we find him preaching that very practical sermon. Get your act together. Transcend your suffering. It's time to be a hero. Rather, he says what? I am mute. And we hear him vow in verse 1, I will, I will guard my mouth with a muzzle. So Thomas Brooks comes along and he's, he's reading Psalm 39 and he, he seizes upon verse 9 and he draws out this doctrine for the Christian. He writes, It is the great duty and concernment of gracious souls. It's the duty and great concernment of Christians, he is saying, to be mute and silent under the greatest afflictions, the saddest providences, and the sharpest trials that they meet within this world. Or we could shorten this title up and say, the duty of the Christian is to be mute, is to be mute under the smarting rod. So as we take a step back from Psalm 39, take a step back from, from Thomas Brooks' doctrine, this is quite the doctrine to be persuaded of. As you think about it, you're not going to find this doctrine among the most popular books sold on Amazon right now. You're not going to find a, a pop psychology preacher giving you this sort of advice. Even more, as we think about it, it's quite the doctrine to, to live by. As we let this doctrine settle in on us, we might even find it a bit uncomfortable. It just doesn't seem to fit our lives, our, our situation, our, our culture. It doesn't fit like a pair of jeans that are just a bit too tight and you can't buckle it and the inseam is too short. But before we shut out Psalm 39 verse 9, before we, we cast off Thomas Brooks' doctrine on the mute Christian, we have to clear away some misunderstandings by what's meant here. And the first misunderstanding we have to clear away is that the mute Christian is not a stoic. The call to be mute under the smarting rod is not a call to suppress or extinguish our emotions. And here we have to think hard about the way God has created us to be. How has God created us? Well, he's created us as, as emotional creatures. And he did so with a wide spectrum and variety of emotions. He made us creatures who rejoice at the sight of beauty and truth. We sing songs when we love someone. He made us creatures who shudder before mighty storms. He made us creatures who feel discouragement when we, we meet failure. He made us creatures who mourn over death and sickness. He, he made us this way. A careful reading of Psalm 39 reveals that David is not choking off his emotional life. 
We see a wide spectrum of emotion evident in this psalm. We see anguish and despair. We find comfort. We find hope all in this short little psalm. Even more, when we leave Psalm 39 and look at the broader context of, of Scripture, the Scriptures will not let us shut down our emotions. Who do we serve? We serve, serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we think about Jesus' ministry, what did Jesus do in the flesh? Well, he rejoiced. He sang. He, he worshipped. He loved. He grew tired. He grew weary. He wept. He was in anguish. He lamented. He, he mourned. We see in Jesus' life that he displayed a, a full range of emotions, and he sanctified all of them for the people of God. Even more, we are commanded by the Scriptures to engage our emotions in this present life. We, above all people as Christians, should be an emotional people. Romans chapter 12, verse 15 commands us, Paul says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and, and weep with those who, who weep. And so Thomas Brooks writes, clarifying what he means, he says, God allows his people to groan, though not to grumble. It is not sighing, but muttering. It is not groaning, but grumbling. It is not roaring, but murmuring that is opposite to holy silence. In fact, we can say this morning, if you're in the midst of suffering and difficulty, or if you're walking with someone in the midst of suffering and difficulty, and you, and you don't feel, you don't have any emotions working in your body, this isn't a sign of grace. It's not a sign that you've, you've leveled up in the Christian life. It's, it's, a, it's a sign that something has gone wrong with you. God's created us to be an emotional creatures. And there's a second understanding, misunderstanding that we have to clear away. And it's this, the, the mute Christian is not a fatalist. So in the midst of Psalm 39, we don't find David saying, just forget it. It's going to be what it's going to be. David's muteness is not a matter of determinism. Rather, we find David looking for alleviation. We find David looking for a lawful escape from his present situation. So right before verse 9, David says, Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. And right on the heels of verse 9, David seeks the face of the Lord. He says, remove your stroke from me. And the psalm ends with words of intercession. David is looking for release. Verse 12, hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears. So we can say, well, whatever it means to be mute, it doesn't involve a, a notion of misguided fatalism. It doesn't involve the absence of earnest prayer and pleading with God for him to change us or, or our circumstances. It does not involve us a, a nosedive into despair where there is no hope. Rather, we learn from this psalm and from the rest of the scriptures that it's right, it's good, it's lawful to seek reprieve from our suffering, from our trials. Think of James as he instructs the church. He says, is any among you suffering? Is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and, and let them pray over him. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. James is saying, seek alleviation. It's, it's good. Seek healing. It's good. And the Lord Jesus himself instructs us on how to pray. He, he instructs us saying, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Jesus is saying it's good to seek alleviation, even future preventative alleviation. But we have to understand that our God does not always grant reprieve the way we think we should get reprieve. The Apostle Paul reminds us of this fact. Paul says, 
Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Talking about the thorn in his flesh. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul's praying for deliverance, but Jesus gives him a different answer. My grace, that's what you're going to get. And so with these misunderstandings cleared out of the way, we're now in a position to start building up this doctrine. And so we can ask, well, what does it mean to be mute under the smarting rod? We can ask, well, what does it look like to be silent under the greatest afflictions, the saddest providences, and the sharpest trials? We find the foundation of our answer in the text of Scripture, verse 9. We have to look at the grammar of Scripture this morning. That's where the answer is found. David says, I am mute, I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. And so we see in verse 9 that David is clothing his mouth for a reason, and that reason is God. David attributes his trouble, his suffering, his affliction to God, and this connection between David's suffering and God is, is clarified throughout the psalm. In verse 10, David says, Remove your stroke from me. I'm spent by the hostility of your hand. Again, in verse 13, David attributes his suffering to God. He, he prays, look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. So we have to think about this. David is doing something remarkable again. He doesn't point to the secondary causes of suffering in his life. He's not pointing at some political adversary that's a, a thorn in his side. He's not talking about some physical ailment going on in his body or some familial trouble. While all of this is likely happening, he moves past them and attributes his suffering to God. David is silent because God has done it. He says, I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. And so we can see clearly that to be mute in suffering has something to do with our understanding and our relationship with God. To be mute is not so much about using or not using our physical vocal cords, for we find David himself in Psalm 39 singing and instructing us on suffering. Rather, to be mute in suffering is a God-directed, God-oriented posture, a posture that involves trust and humility, submission, and patience. And so what we're going to do with the rest of our time is, is try to build up this inside and try to flesh it out. See, practically, well, what, is it, what does this relationship with God actually look like? What does, it actually, what does it actually do in the midst of our lives? We can flesh it out in four different ways. The, the first way is this. The, the mute Christian acknowledges that God is the author of all of our afflictions. We see this in our text. David points at God. He says, it is you who have done it. He says, your stroke. He says, the, the hostility of your hands. We can ask here, well, how can we be sure that this psalm, Psalm 39, is not just an aberration in the scriptures? How can we be sure that this psalm does not only apply to David's situation? How can we be sure it applies to my situation? Well, when you're, you're graphing in math class, it's nice to have not just one point, but have several and so we can look at the life of Job this morning and get another sounding point. So you remember the story of Job. He, he lost vast fortunes of wealth, animals, and servants. He lost all of his children in one fatal blow. He was struck by, by sores from, from his toes to his head. 
probably worst of all, he was surrounded by worthless counselors. And we can ask, well, how did Job respond? Well, we don't find Job pointing his finger at the Sabaeans or the Chaldeans who struck his servants with the sword. We don't find Job murmuring about that great windstorm that came through and flattened the house and killed all of his children at once. We don't even find Job pointing his finger at Satan who is at work in all of these things. Rather, what do we find Job doing? Well, we find Job doing business with God. He says, we know these words. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We can't skim over these words. Job says, the Lord gave. He looks at all the blessings in his life, and he attributes them to God. Family, house, wealth, fortunes. God gave it. What does he say next? The Lord has, has taken away. He looks at the Sabians and the the Chaldeans. He looks at the great windstorm. He looks at the sores on his body and he says, the Lord has taken away. The Lord is in this. And he says elsewhere in the book of Job, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? Thomas Brooks comments on this pattern we find in the scriptures. He says, there is no sickness so little but God has a finger in it though it be but the aching of this little finger. And on the surface, this seems like a very cold truth to be served. What do we do with the truth of God's sovereignty over all things? But when you wrestle with it, and this is a truth that we have to wrestle with. You have to strive with it. It's not something you can just say, yes. You have to wrestle with it. And when you wrestle with it, you find it to be a stabilizing truth. Because as Christians, we're not cast into a bottomless sea in our suffering where we flail about as the waves come over us and eventually drown us. No, with the knowledge of God's sovereignty over all things, absolutely everything, we have a firm and solid rock under our feet. Yes, the waves are going to come. Yes, they're going to pound against us. But with the sovereign God and of his knowledge over all things, of his sovereignty over all things, We have a a firm standing place. And so the the mute Christian is one who realizes he has to do business with the sovereign God of the Scriptures, like Job did, like David did. And the mute Christian acknowledges God's sovereignty over all things. We have a second consideration. The mute Christian tastes the sweetness of God in the gospel. Mute Christian tastes the sweetness of God in the gospel. So David says to the Lord in verse 9, it is is you who have done it. So what is David doing here? Well, he's owning the sovereignty of God over all things, even over his personal suffering. He's not shrinking back from that doctrine. But what is important to notice is what David does here. He doesn't dread the God who has done it. Rather, what does David do in this psalm? He runs to the God who has done it in hope. We find David taking counsel with the Lord who has done it in verse 7. David says, And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. And as readers of this psalm, we ask, well, how can David actually do this? The Lord has done it. Why in the world would he run to the God who has done it? We have to be clear. David doesn't have Stockholm Syndrome. 
He runs to the God, the author of all of his afflictions, because he has come to know the the truth about this God. He runs because he has tasted the forgiveness of, of sins from this God. He says elsewhere, he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. David runs to God because he has tasted the love of God, pure and unfiltered. David says elsewhere in the Psalms, Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. David runs to God because he has tasted the faithfulness of God and he has found God sure in every instance, in every moment of his life. David says elsewhere in the Psalms, your your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. David runs to God because he knows the heart of his God. David says elsewhere. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. And there's truth for us to consider here. That the soul that has not enjoyed close acquaintance with God in the gospel will not fare well in suffering. We can even heighten this statement. that The soul that has not had close acquaintance with God in the gospel will fail in suffering. In affliction, that soul may believe that he has come under the power of some monster. In suffering, that soul may believe that he's been hacked by an enemy. But the soul that has enjoyed close acquaintance with God is going to find rich stores to feast upon in the time of affliction. And so the mute Christian is a man, it's, it's a woman who's enjoyed God and who continues to enjoy God in the midst of adversity, affliction, and trouble. And there's a, a clear and direct call to us this morning, both to the sufferer and the ones who are about to suffer. And it's this, you, you need to run to the heart of your God. And here he we're pressed. In the midst of this psalm, we're, we're asked, well, how well do you actually know your God? How well are you actually acquainted with his heart and his, his ways? Do you just know God from a, a distance? He's just a figure off there. Is he merely just a, a shadowy figure in your life that you pay homage to? But David calls to us, if you're, going to, if you're going to endure suffering the way God wants you to, you, you need to taste the sweetness of God in the gospel. You need to be able to say with David, because your steadfast love is better than life, my, my lips will praise you. You need to be able to sing with David, your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens and your your faithfulness to the clouds. You need to have it ingrained in your heart. The Lord is is good to all. His mercy is over all that he has made. The Lord is righteous in all his ways. He's kind in all his works. The mute Christian tastes the sweetness of God in the gospel, owns it day by day. third consideration. The mute Christian has insight into the purposes of God. So if God is both sovereign and good, and we own these truths, we say amen to them, we have to reason that there has to be some purpose to our our suffering as God's children. And in fact, we can move past that this morning and say that there is not one purposeless act of suffering in God's economy. The apostle gives us insight into the ways of God. Romans chapter 8, verse 28, Paul says, 
And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. It's a familiar verse. But what Paul says here is so important. It's expansive. Paul says, all things. And Paul's inviting us to consider the spinning world and all that's going on in it. Consider the missiles flying in the Middle East. Consider the the virus spreading around the world. Consider controversial elections. Consider these big things, all things. He's saying, consider all the little things in your life. When you get up in the middle of the night and you, you stub your toe, the common cold that your kids seem to always have, even our own personal tragedies, the death of loved ones, grandparents who have dementia and can't remember who they, where they are or what they're doing, cancer. What Paul is saying is all things, big things, little things, and everywhere in between, all is leverage for the good of God's children. And so the Christian can be mute, the Christian can be quiet and humble because the end point of all things is secure. While there are many strange detours in our lives and winding side roads, the Christian does not despair because we are assured that these strange detours, that these strange winding roads we're traveling on are actually getting us somewhere. And Paul says we are careening as God's children faster than we can imagine and sooner than we can think towards an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. There is an end point to this story. And we have insight into it. And so the Christian is mute, quiet, and humble. This brings us to our last consideration. Fourth, the mute Christian humbly recognizes the need for affliction. We need affliction in our life. Thomas Brooks writes, Stars shine brightest in the darkest night. Grapes yield most wine when most pressed. Spices smell sweetest when pounded. Afflictions are the saints' best benefactors to heavenly affections. Where afflictions hang heaviest, corruptions hang loosest. The reality is that afflictions in the hand of our good and loving God change us for the good. They drive us away from idols. They unmask the foolish pursuits of the world. We're so often blinded by these pursuits, but afflictions give us true sight. And we find this work happening in David's life in Psalm 39. As afflictions come upon him, he starts to see reality with truth. He says in verses 5 and 6, surely a man goes about as a shadow, Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. So as we consider ourselves this morning, we are in need of discipline. We are in need of the Lord's painful discipline. We can just do a simple spiritual inventory of our souls and reveal how how much we need this. Just consider your your soul this morning. How, how, How slow we're often to pray. How slow we're actually to to run to God. How quick we are to to express anger at those we love. How our hearts turn aside after after greed and foolish things. How our eyes are prone to lust and wander. And our God has a heart full of love and he's got an eye set upon our eternal good and he weans us, he transforms us through affliction. 
God takes his word and he rubs it into us through these afflictions. It's through the, the friction of affliction we are changed from one degree of glory to another. It's like the Lord takes the word and he, he places it to sandpaper and then he, he rubs us with it, removing what is impure and leaving what is holy. And the author of Hebrews comments on this. He says, he disciplines us for our good. Those are good words to meditate on. He disciplines us for our good. Why? That we may share in his holiness. That's what God is getting done in our lives through afflictions, that we may share in his holiness. And so the mute Christian, while not seeking out affliction and trouble and suffering, humbly accepts it from the hand of God. It's for our good. It's for our holiness. And, and so we pray with David, verse 4. O Lord, make me know my end, and what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. The mute Christian humbly accepts the affliction of the Lord. And so, dear brothers and sisters who are experiencing the fiery trial now and who will soon experience the fiery trial, do not be surprised as though something strange were happening to you. But God has done it, and he is in it for your good, your eternal good. Rather, let us as one people fix our eyes upon the greater son of David. And we have to recognize this. Psalm 39 is not just about David and his situation. It's not just about us. But it's preeminently about another man, the Lord Jesus Christ, the greater son of David. And so let us as one people fix our eyes upon the greater son of David who when oppressed and afflicted opened not his mouth. Let us fix our eyes upon the greater son of David who when led like a lamb to the, to the slaughterhouse made not a sound. Let us fix our eyes upon the greater son of David who in the, the midst of his many adversaries did not cry aloud or, or lift up his voice or made it heard in the street. Let us as God's people fix our eyes on the greater son of David who when reviled did not revile in return, who in suffering did not threaten. Let us as God's people fix our eyes upon the greater son of David who entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Let us fix our eyes upon the greater son of David who bore our sins in his body on the tree. And as we fix our eyes upon him, let us follow in his footsteps. Christ was mute in his suffering, and he calls us to the same. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we, we desperately need your word, and we pray that you would press it, press it into us. Would you give us true spiritual sight? And would you give us grace, not just to know it, but to obey it. Show us Christ and give us grace to follow Christ. We pray this in your son's great and glorious name. Amen.